The Old Testament reading is Isaiah 9-6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Happy Advent, everyone. Merry Christmas, too. Looks like we're missing a few people. Maybe they're still getting coffee. Uh, so we'll just start talking and make them feel guilty when they come back in. Uh, but it's great to be with you. And we've been trying to intentionally slow down as a congregation and pause to reflect upon who Jesus is during this Advent season. And we've been looking at this one verse over and over, and these names that Isaiah assigns to God and asking, how does Jesus fulfill these names? What task does he come to do on our behalf and that we especially recognize in this season? So as we look this morning at Everlasting Father, let's begin by praying together. Father, you are our Father, and you are the Father of Jesus, the crucified and the risen one who came to heal the world to take away our sins, to tell us that there is reason to hope. There is reason to think about the future with anticipation. And Father, I pray that even during this time, reflecting on this passage and this moment, the next 20 or so minutes, that you might reach into our life in a new way, that you might surprise us by your presence, that you might cause us to think thoughts and follow ideas that Maybe we haven't considered before, and maybe that seem scary to us. Lord, I pray that wherever we find ourselves this morning, whether we are here just by chance, just because we walk by and thought, what is going on in this room, or whether this is our place every Sunday morning, we all, what is common among us is that we need you, and we need hope in this dark and dying world. We need to find that there is someone speaking from outside of it that has our interest at heart. Father, I pray that you would move into this space and move into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So you may know Dorothy Sayers as a a writer from the last century. She was one of the very first female graduates of Oxford University. And she actually attended all her classes and finished her degree before they were actually granting degrees to women. So she had to wait for a number of years after she walked across the stage to actually receive a degree. Well, she wrote poetry, she translated Dante into English, she wrote three volumes of commentary on Dante, and she wrote many books of theology that are very perceptive. She was a very, very smart lady. But she's best known for writing mystery thrillers, for writing crime novels. She got very famous writing one particular series set in between the First and Second World War. And her main character was this aristocrat guy named Lord Peter Whimsey. And he's great at solving crimes, great at solving mysteries, but he's not all that good at solving life and solving his happiness. And about 
halfway through the series, it seems that Dorothy Sayers sort of sees this in the character that she's written. She wants to do something about it. And so a new character emerges, and her name is Harriet Vane. And she's a writer of mystery novels. And she graduated, one of the first women to graduate from Oxford. She's very smart. Hmm. Curious. Well, they meet, and they fall in love, and they marry. And for the first time, Peter seems like he's going to be okay. So what's going on here? The author, the, the real author, Dorothy Sayers, writes Harriet Vane into this series of novels because in some ways she loves this character. She wants this character to flourish and to be happy, and she writes Harriet in the story to rescue him, to heal him. Advent is the story of God, the author of life, who looks into the world that he has created, and he knows that it needs healing. In fact, he knows that we need healing, and he writes himself into the story to bring that healing. He writes himself into the story as the person of Jesus. You see, his father heart would not allow him to stand by when his children were suffering, when his children were lonely, when you and I were overmatched by life. Now, we've been looking at how and why the early church and later Handel and his famous oratorio, The Messiah, which made this verse actually very famous, and it's probably, if you're not a Christian, why you know this verse, why it seems at least familiar. We've been looking at why this verse from Isaiah that the early church and Handel chose to attach these names to Jesus, wonderful counselor, mighty God, and now everlasting Father. And if you think about it, we we have a couple of problems here because everlasting Father… In applying to Jesus, it's problematic. Now, one of those questions, or one of those problems, rather, is that you may not have had a great father. You may have had a very broken relationship with your father. He may have just been okay, or he may have been downright terrible. And gendered language for God in general is kind of difficult in a place like Portland. Why do we have to talk about God as a man? Isn't that just a cultural projection of an ancient society? Their patriarchal ideas are now embedded in the way that we talk about God and how the Bible talks about God. Well, maybe I'll surprise you for a moment for a pastor to admit this, but yes, to a certain degree, that's certainly true. But Isaiah is not using this image of father to suggest that God is somehow a gendered male being. And there are plenty of other images, plenty of motherly female images about God in the Bible. Anthropomorphic language, metaphors, images, they always both reveal something that can be true, but they also conceal something as well. They're helpful, but they're inexact. But in an ancient culture where the Bible took shape, the father in society was the the center of the child's universe, and really in many ways was the center of the entire culture, for better or for worse. So this image of God as a father, and what we'll say Jesus, in fact, as a father, sort of cuts in two directions, and we are meant 
to come to understand God who in both similarity as a father, but also in contrast. Because God as Father is both greater and more stable and more loving than the absolute best fathers that we could imagine. And He is everlasting. He doesn't leave us. He doesn't forsake us like the worst fathers or like all fathers eventually do because all fathers die and they leave us, which in the ancient world could most of the time mean destitution and poverty for the family where the patriarch died. You see, Father is not the only way that we're supposed to think about God. God creates us, humanity, in His image after all, male and female we are created. But Isaiah is saying here, and the Bible picks up on this over and over, that there's something about this concept of father that is very important, at least in its ideal form, that captures something that God longs to be, someone that God longs to be on our behalf. But there's a second problem, and maybe you know this if you've read the Gospels and you've read the New Testament, and that's that Jesus wasn't a father. Jesus was a son. He was the son of God, and he was the son of Joseph. And nowhere in the Bible does it talk specifically, directly, about Jesus being a father. So let's deal with that, that this passage, this ancient passage in Isaiah is not directly appealed to as a verse describing Jesus as father. And maybe as we do that, we can tease out a little bit further why actually, in contrast, that this image is more than appropriate as both an Advent image and also why it's so critical for us to find hope and for us to find healing during this season. Now, if you remember from the last couple of weeks, Isaiah is writing to a nation that is in sorrow, a nation that's desolate, a nation that is in exile. They've been overrun by the Assyrians, and their hope was all but gone. You see, they had the promises of God that they read in the synagogue on these scrolls each and every week, and yet they found their nation absorbed into another, first split between north and south, Israel and Judah, now completely desolated by the powers of a foreign army, by a nation that didn't know Yahweh, that didn't have those promises given to them, that didn't know God as a father. So surely, as you and I would, they felt let down. They felt abandoned. They felt orphaned. What has become of God's promise to Abram that if he will leave his father's estate, if he will leave his home, that he will go and God will make of him a great nation and God will be an everlasting father for Abram. What has become of that promise? And certainly, Isaiah, as he's writing this, psalm, many psalms, particularly maybe Psalm 68, is revolving around in his head that says, God is the father of orphans and a protector of widows. God gives the desolate a home to live in. Surely Isaiah had this psalm in mind as he spoke to Judah, this southern tribe, 
this image of a king that he's giving them who would come as an everlasting father, one who would never leave his children to be orphans. Well, here is the good news for us as we sit here this morning, maybe 25, 2600 years after this promise which was originally given, because if we can connect Jesus to this image, if we can connect Jesus to this fatherly language, then we see this promise not to this, just this nation, this one nation in an ancient day, but to orphans everywhere. And in fact, to an orphaned world that's in need of a home, that's in need of a, a loving father. And we read John 14, most of it anyway, and this famous passage where Jesus tells us why He became incarnate, why Advent exists, why He came into the world to make God known, in fact, to an orphaned world, to make His Father known to us. And He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. And if you really know me, you know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him because you have seen me. And if you were paying attention over and over, he sort of conflates these images of Jesus as the Son and God as the Father, as if those two things are one, as if you see Jesus the Son and who he is is actually a perfect representation of the Father. Though in Trinitarian terms, we know that He is the Son, and there are certain tasks that He takes up specifically that are His responsibility, but He is announcing now that when you see how He fulfills those tasks, you see the Father behind them. You see, Jesus fathers us by binding Himself to us and by doing what the Father has always wanted to do for us and in us, and then eventually through us. He is carrying out the Father's will on our behalf. And He tells His disciples later in that same passage of His impending departure when they will be apart from Him. And He promises, get this, I will not leave you orphaned. You will always have a home. Even when Jesus bodily departs, you will, know, you will not be an orphan. You will have a home. Isaiah is giving us this image of a loving and reliable father whose presence and whose protection will stretch across the generations from Isaiah's time to the time of Jesus and now to our time. And what Jesus is telling us in John 14 is that he is the carrier of the family promises. He's the carrier of the family name. He's the one who brings the presence of the Father incarnate in a body and now given to you. And if you know Him, you see, you know the everlasting Father. And nothing moves a Father's heart. Nothing moves the everlasting Father's heart like orphans in need of a home. Nothing gladdens His heart like hearing his child's voice, hearing you invite him into the dark places of your life, the needy places of your life, the place where you feel most 
alone and most afraid. Now, one of the most amazing feelings that you can have as a dad of young children is when you discover how much they need you and how much they depend upon you. Of course, one of the most annoying things that you can discover as a dad of young children is how much they depend upon you and how much they need you, like all the time. But seriously, there's no feeling in the world like when your child encounters something new or challenging or scary and says, Dad, can you help me with this? Or says, will you come with me into this scary place on this scary ride? I'm scared. Can I come and sleep with you? Normally that's because mom is there and she's the comforting one to sleep with. But just go with me here. When a child comes and says, I'll try this if you do it with me. You see, God revealing himself as everlasting father means that we don't have to live as orphans. We don't have to face hard things, you see, alone. And so I guess what I want to ask you this morning, what I need to ask myself is, what are you facing this Advent season? What are you facing this next year that you find hard, that you find challenging, that you find scary, that the light has yet to illuminate your path? Where do you need the everlasting Father to show up for you next year, to go with you? What could you try that if you knew He would go with you, that you would try it? Maybe it's beginning a new relationship that shows some level of promise, but it's scary because it's new, and in any new relationship, there's a level of unknown that is difficult, and maybe you might get hurt in this new relationship, or maybe it's ending a relationship that's already hurting you. It's unhealthy, and it's destructive to your well-being, and maybe you need to end it. Or it could be that you're feeling just utterly defeated by a pattern of behavior in your life and you feel completely powerless to stop it. Or perhaps it's something very simple, like trying to cut down on the noise and the distraction, the addiction to distraction that keeps us married to our devices and to social media and to 30 tabs open on our browser. I don't know anything about that. just speaking hypothetically. Or maybe it's not a simple search for silence and quiet, but it's a huge search, a search for meaning, a search for truth. You're beginning to investigate Christianity maybe for the first time, and maybe that's scary and intimidating. Whatever it is, we all face hard things. And where could life change for you If you were able to say, God, can you help me? Father, will you come with me? Or, Dad, I'll I'll try it if you will try it with me. Now, I want to do something a little bit different this morning, and this is not my style, so just go with me. But I want you to think about these questions this week, tomorrow, the next day, so forth. And I want you to come back with something specific. 
maybe a couple of things, and I'd like you to write that down. And you don't have to hand it around, but put it in the offering bag as it comes by. And it can be anonymous, anonymous or you can put your name to it. But e- either way, I will commit to pray for that specific thing between now and New Year's. Um, and give that as an offering, symbolic as offering up this area of life to God in this new year. And then maybe think of a way to track it. Put it on your refrigerator, put it in your journal, put it on your computer somewhere, and begin to think about how you can live into that, how you can ask God to meet you in that place. Michelle, just write it down. We can That'll be the way you can do it, okay? As we close, one of the most fundamental things that we expect of a father, of a good father, is protecting his children, right? Sure, a wise parent will allow certain painful or challenging things to enter into their child's life because a good father knows that They won't become whole. They won't become mature people if they're insulated from all hard things. But no good father would ever let complete destruction and true harm come upon their children if there was any way that they could prevent it. But you see, by this metric, at least at first glance, God, the everlasting Father, seems to fail on this account. Because what we celebrate at Advent, his baby son being born into the world at Christmas, that same son goes to a cross and is tortured and dies, and God allows it to happen. The everlasting Father doesn't stop that from being inflicted on his son. And so I guess the question that maybe we should all consider is, could he have prevented it? Could he have stopped it? Could he have saved his son's life? And the Bible's answer is absolutely astonishing. Because what it says is that not if your life depended on it. That his great love for you as the everlasting father, if he had the power, which we believe he did, to stop the torturous death of his son, he couldn't do it because of his great love for you. He was so committed, you see, to your healing and to mine, you, his sons and his daughters, that as our everlasting Father, he gave up the life of his only son, Jesus. And Jesus, as the carrier of family promises, the one who is his eternal son and yet at the same time binds himself to our need on behalf of the Father's wishes, He goes to the cross, you see, and there he crucifies all of our shame and all of our sin and sadness and all of our darkness and all of our fear. And he says, it is finished, and that he will be with you, with us, until the end of the age. Let me leave you with this quote because it's from Dorothy Sayers, and it kind of rounds out this sermon. She says, there's something reciprocal. There's something similar between our suffering and Jesus's suffering. She says the incarnation means that for whatever reason, God chose to allow us to be limited, 
to, be su- to suffer, to be subject to sorrows and to death. For whatever reason God did that, He has nonetheless had the honesty and the courage to take His own medicine. He can exact nothing from us that He has not exacted from Himself. He has Himself gone through the whole of human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and the lack of money, to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He was born in poverty, and he died in disgrace. He suffered infinite pain for all of us, and he thought it well worth his time. Is this a God that you could trust this week, this new year? Is this the kind of father whose everlasting love could give you the strength to do hard things? the courage to face whatever it is that's daunting and unknown this upcoming year, whatever is scary, whatever is challenging, could you say, Father, would you do it with me? Let's pray. God, I pray that we would be people of courage and people of strength, people that do hard things, people that lean into this next year with expectation and with hope not just for ourselves and not just for our own individual lives, but hope for our community, that we as a community would be a community of strength and of hope and of your abiding presence and that we would do hard things, not just for us as a community even, but for a hurting world, for our neighbors outside these doors. Father, I pray that you would enter into our community this year in a new way so that we could enter into our community in a new way. And we pray that you would strengthen us and give us courage and give us the means to do those things that you call us to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.